because beginning in verse 9, it really uh, fits better with chapter 57. Uh, There's a pretty sharp break in the middle of chapter 56 between some very good news and then in 56 verse 9, some very bad news. So we're going to focus on the first eight verses, and in saying that, it's really the first two verses that we're going to spend most of our time. The other verses I'll allude to probably, but uh, I'll let you read those and think about those on your own. Last week from Isaiah chapter 56, a little bit of review. Uh, What we learned is it starts off with some ethical instructions. It starts off with some moral instructions. It starts off with telling the people what they ought to do. He is not telling the people what they ought to do so that they might have their sins forgiven. He's telling the people what they ought to do because their sins have been forgiven. And there's a world of difference between the two. God does tell people how they ought to live. But he does not tell people how they ought to live in order to get peace with him. In order to get sins forgiven. Rather, God tells people how they ought to live after they have received the forgiveness of sins. There's a world of difference between the two. Back, if we were to go back to chapter 43 and verse 25, the Lord says very specifically, I, I am he who blots out your transgressions for my own sake. Not because of what you've done. Not because you've given it a good effort, not because you've tried really hard, not because I see the sincerity of your heart. The only reason why sins are ever forgiven is because of the Lord's own sake. It's because God determines to forgive sins. Those who put their faith in his promise, in the person of the Son, sins are forgiven. But once sins are forgiven, he expects you to live a certain lifestyle that reflects the forgiveness of sins. So we're to motivate, Christians are to be motivated by what God has done, what has been received. Christians are also to be motivated by what God has promised yet to do. So our present moment is affected by the past, Christ dying on the cross to take away sins. It's also motivated by his uh, promised future that Christ is coming back in power and glory. And there will be a reward for the righteous And there will be punishment for the wicked. So Christians are motivated both by the past and by the future. That's part of what's captured in chapter 56. I referred to it as the already not yet principle. Uh, That's a common saying in theology Christian circles. We are motivated by what God has already done. We are motivated by what God has promised yet to do. I'm not finished yet. I'm a work in progress. If you're a Christian, you're not finished yet. You are a work in progress. So, in chapter 56, it starts off verse 1. Thus says the Lord, keep justice and do righteousness, for soon my salvation will come and my righteousness be revealed. Uh, You have the already not yet principle. You're to do certain things. uh, Keep justice, do righteousness, because my salvation will come. My deliverance will come. My righteousness will be revealed. That's what he's promising to do in the future, specifically for these Israelites who are going to be taken into captivity. They will be delivered. The end of the story is not that you're going to never be received back into Jerusalem, never be received back into the homeland. I have a, I have a, a, a future, a, 
There's a, I have a hope and a future. What's that verse in Jeremiah? I know the plans that I have for you, plans. That's to Israel. That's to Israel. It's not really to the church, but God's got this glorious promise for them. And they're to live in light of his promised future, not in light of their present circumstances. Christians should also be motivated by these same things. We have a little bit different promises. Some of them are the same. Some are overlap, but some are different. Uh, we did Second Peter. We were in Peter's second epistle. I checked. I think it was at the end of 2016, the beginning of 2017. And you have the exact same principle where believers that Peter's writing to are to be motivated by what's coming in the future. I will read those verses to you. I wish you could see them. Peter writes in chapter 3 of his second letter, The day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done in it will be exposed. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness? If I know that's going to happen in the future, what sort of lives should we live now? Peter says, lives of holiness and godliness, because we know this stuff isn't going to last. He goes on, we're waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. But according to his promise, we are waiting... For a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. We're waiting for that. A new heaven and a new earth. Therefore, since you are waiting for these, be diligent to be found by him without spot or blemish and at peace. If I know that's coming, I should be diligent, make an effort now to be found by him doing what is right. Keeping justice. Doing righteousness or in Peter's words, without spot and blemish, and at peace. So there are two key terms uh, that that, uh, Isaiah uses in chapter 56 and verse 1. Keep justice. This isn't a hard, fast rule, especially in chapter 56, but oftentimes in the Bible, when those two terms are put together, uh, justice and righteousness, righteousness has more to do with myself, my own righteousness, and My standing before God, my righteousness is in Christ. I'm forgiven because of Christ's righteousness. But having been forgiven, I am to walk in righteousness. I should live a different life. My life should be characterized by righteousness. But it's not just about my righteousness, my standing before God. I'm also to keep justice. And churches can fall into one of two ditches where they emphasize one to the exclusion of the other. A more liberal church or a more theologically liberal uh, way of thinking would be the church is only about issues of justice. And the church should be interested about uh, the cause for right to life. The church should be interested about the oppression of the poor. The church should be interested in reaching the classes of society that are often neglected. Those are matters of justice, and the church ought to be concerned about those things. But they shouldn't do it in such a way that there's no concern for righteousness, salvation, matters of sin, death, and hell. 
matters of guilt and, uh, and how sins need to be remissed because of Christ. But the opposite side of the coin is, the more conservative side, which is my tradition, it doesn't have to be this way, but the danger is where, where the church only emphasizes a message of salvation and the forgiveness of sins, what is neglected are issues of justice. And both are causes of concern so far as Scripture is concerned. I should be concerned about righteousness, my righteousness, me doing what is right. But I also should be concerned in, in matters of justice. Both are, are matters of concern to the church. This is both Old and New Testament. Um, the first term, keeping justice. It's a kind of a controversial term. Um, different, lots, of, lots has been written on keeping justice. I would suggest it's more than just being a just person myself. I think when the scripture often says a term like that, it's not just be fair, be just, you treat people fairly. It's broader than that. It's a little more aggressive than that. It's keeping justice. It's more aggressive. It's not just me doing the right thing, but it is me desiring and playing my part to see society, as controversial as that may be, I'm not talking about uh, the way a secular soci society defines justice, but the church is to be concerned with justice. And they're to do it in a way that reflects biblical values and how all people are created in the image of God. Uh, rich, poor, black, white, whatever you're standing in life, you are an image bearer of God, and we ought to see, uh, we ought to care about people's condition and plight. So keeping justice, the word keep is used not quite 500 times in the Bible. Uh, it is a word that most basically means to exercise great care over. If the church is to keep justice, we are to exercise great care over justice. I will give you maybe the first four or five times it's ever used in the Bible. The first time the word is ever used in the Bible is before sin... Adam has been created, Genesis chapter 2, and the Lord tells Adam this. The Lord took the man Adam, put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. It means to exercise great care over the garden. Keep the garden. Adam is not tasked with making sure nobody steps on the flowers and stay off the grass. That's passive. What Adam is charged with is take this garden and rearrange it and orchestrate it in ways that bring new meaning to my glory. Extend my glory by putting your stamp, your image on this garden. You're going to plant flowers in a certain way. You're going to arrange them in a certain way. Uh, you're going to, whatever you do in that garden, it will extend my glory. That is keeping the garden. In Genesis chapter 3 is the second time it's used. This is now after Adam and Eve have sinned. And part of their punishment reads like this. The Lord drove out the man at the east of the Garden of Eden. He placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. The sword is keeping the tree of life off limits. 
It's aggressive. It's not passive. It's not just a no trespassing sign, stay out of the garden. There is a cherubim that is a heavenly or spiritual being placed there that is going to keep Adam out of the garden. And there's a flaming sword in Genesis chapter 3 that guards the way to the tree of life. It's aggressive. It's intentional. It's not by accident. And that's what the Lord is requiring in, in Isaiah chapter 56. I want you to keep justice. You're going to pursue it. You're going to work at it. It's an ongoing effort. It's not just a matter of my own self. It is, I am to see that happen in the world around me, so much as I'm able. It's an effort of God's people. There are other passages, but uh, since I don't have them on the screen, I think I'll skip those. I'll move from keeping justice to doing righteousness. Uh, Other Bibles translate, do righteousness as do what is right. Or let your behavior be rightly ordered. What does that look like? What does it mean to do righteousness? There's a passage in Judges uh, that if you know anything about the book of Judges, you probably know a few characters. You probably know Samson in the book of Judges. You may know Gideon in the book of Judges. Those are probably the two most popular. But you know, if you've ever been through the book of Judges... That toward, It goes from bad to worse. Uh, Judges starts off with Joshua dying, and when Joshua dies, people start going wayward. And by the end of the book, it looks really ugly. It's one of the darkest books in all of the Bible. And Judges has this refrain towards the end of the book. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did... no. Uh, Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. I fear that sometimes when you read that verse, what you imagine or what you're hearing is, in those days there was no king and everyone did what they wanted. And that's bad. And to some extent that's true, but it's actually worse than that. Because it's not just in those days there was no king in Israel and everyone did what they wanted. It's everyone did what was right in their own eyes. We live in a culture right now where we, it's easy to think everybody just does what they want or, or our society is getting worse. It's, it's more blatantly worse. It's more obviously worse, and that's true. But the problem is it's, it's bad enough that people are doing what they want. It's worse that in our culture people are doing what they think is right in their own eyes. They think that the Bible having any sort of a standard of morality and justice and ethics, that that's wrong, and they're doing what's right. They're not just doing what they want. They're not just identifying how they want and pursuing the lifestyle that what they want. They think it's right. And a society is in deep trouble when they're pursuing what is immoral and unethical and an offense to God, and they think they're doing what's right. So to do what's right, if God says in chapter 56 and verse 1, I want you to do righteousness, it requires a certain standard. And if there is a standard outside of myself, it requires a standard giver. And that standard giver is God. Rightness is defined by God. God decides what is right. 
And if the church, if God's people are to do what is right, it's not what you think is right. It's not what Baptists think are right. It's not what Presbyterians think are right. It's what God says is right according to his word. And some things are very clear from the outset. Some things it takes a while to figure out exactly what God would have us to do in certain situations. That rightness is revealed in Isaiah's day when he writes this and he says, I want you to do what is right. What they would immediately think of is Moses's law. That's what is right. And that's what they should be thinking. Moses' law is a covenant given to Israel. It consisted of rabbis numbered it out. There were 613 laws. That's what is right. Do righteousness. Do those 613 things or don't do them, depending on whether it's something they should or should not do. That's what they should commit themselves to. But those 613 laws can be reduced. They weren't all written on tablets of stone. Those 613 laws, there were only 10 written on tablets of stone. And those 10 summarize the other 613. What God says is right is on those 10, uh, those 10 commandments written on those tablets of stone. But even those are, are an expansion of the ultimate what God is after, which is when Jesus was questioned, what's the most important commandment out of 613? Or, what is the most important commandment out of the ten? Jesus said, the most important commandment is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And the second is like it, to love your neighbors yourself. All of Moses' law, all of the ten commandments reflect those two commandments. To love God and to love your neighbors yourself. Love God is reflected in the first four commandments. <clears throat> you shall have no other gods beside me. You shall not make an idol for yourself. Do not misuse the name of the Lord your God. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. You do those things, you are loving God. That's what the Israelites were told. Love of neighbor is reflected in the next six commandments. Honor your father and your mother. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not give false testimony against your neighbor and do not covet. You do those six commandments, you're loving your neighbor. You do the first four, you're loving God. That's all of the law. Summed up in those two. Demonstrated by those ten. For Israel, demonstrated in a total of 613 commandments. It's all reflecting uh, those two ultimate commandments. Then you've got verse 2. Isaiah 56 starts off, Blessed is the man who does this, and the son of man who holds it fast. So what does the this refer to? Blessed is the man who does this, the son of man who holds it fast. What does this and it refer to? It's easy to look back and say, well, it has to do with keeping justice and doing righteousness. Blessed is the man who keeps justice and does righteousness. There's truth in that. But most Bible scholars will say it's actually pointing forward, not backward. So when it says, blessed is the man who does this, it's, and I'm about to tell you what you need to do. The son of man who holds it fast, he says, who keeps the Sabbath, not profaning it. And keeps his hand from doing any evil. 
So it's not either or. The, what you should do is reflected in verse 1, but it's also reflected in what is coming in verse 2. And only one of the commandments is actually specified, and that is to keep the Sabbath in verse 2. Blessed is the man who keeps the Sabbath, which is from the first table of law, which is what it means to love God. Why, out of all the commandments, is the one that's named in verse 2 is keeping the Sabbath? That's kind of curious. I played around with this all week. I, I wish I could show you all this on the screen because it would play so much better. You'd be able to see my own train of thought a little easier, I think. But it seems to me that the reason why keeping the Sabbath is labeled as important, and this actually is going to be borne out in verses 3 to 8 because foreigners and eunuchs keep the Sabbath, those who were uh, not really part of the original covenant community of Israel, who are brought in, it says they're keeping the Sabbath as well. So why is that commandment named out of, out of all the ten that are on those tablets of stone? I think it's because keeping the Sabbath demonstrates whether I've got other gods before me. If I were an Israelite, let me be clear. I don't believe I'm under Mosaic law. Uh, I don't believe we certainly aren't keeping the Sabbath like they did. Uh, in, under Mosaic law, it was from Friday sundown to Saturday sundown. In Mosaic law, there was a Sabbath year where you not only observed one day a week, but you observed one year out of seven where you didn't plant your fields. So I don't believe we're under Sabbath law, but I think there is principles that need to be learned. And uh, I guess I'll mention it now. I've got on the back foyer table uh, this sheet I've wrote up originally in March of last year called Sabbath Rest. It's a work in progress. I have wrestled myself for, it's probably the longest problem I've ever worked on that I can think of as a Christian. I've been working on 20 years trying to figure out uh, the importance of Sabbath in a Christian's life because I'm not an Israelite and I'm not under Mosaic law. And yet I think there are principles to be learned by the church and by myself as a Christian. So this is the third version of it. Uh, as I think I learn more or I have additional thoughts, uh, I keep adding to this paper. But it's just front and back. They're available on the back foyer counter. If you want to take it for what it is, uh, it might give you something to think about. I know so far as the Sabbath is concerned, that idea of rest for Christians... I know the thing I need to avoid is just doing what is right in my own eyes. If I just say this is a difficult topic, I'm just going to do what I think is right, I think I'm doing what they did in Judges. I think to the best of my ability, I need to have some understanding and grasp as to what is right so that I can live in obedience to God's principle of rest. So that's reflected in the paper that I wrote. Uh, they're available. So, in verse 2, it's blessed is the man who keeps the Sabbath, because that tells me, tells the Israelite, it tells me what you think about me, whether you've got other gods. It tells me whether you have other images. It tells me when you do worship me, whether you're actually taking my name in vain. Because for an Israelite, if you're not keeping the Sabbath, whatever you're saying about me is reflecting you've got other interests. There's other things that are taking higher priority and are more important than me because you're not obeying the Sabbath. So I think that's why that specific one is mentioned. But the second tablet is also in verse 2. 
because it says, blessed is the man who not only keeps the Sabbath, but blessed is the man who keeps his hand from doing any evil. That's the other six commandments. That's the, the, what you do against your neighbor. That is, don't commit adultery, don't lie, don't steal, don't murder, uh, honor your father and your mother, don't covet. Don't put your hand out against your neighbor. Both of love God and love your neighbor are reflected in verse 2. And they're both in by, uh, essentially, that's the same thing what God is asking in verse 1 when he says to keep righteousness, keep justice, and do righteousness. All right, so verses 3 to 8, all this is expanded upon. It reads like this. Let not the foreigner who has joined himself to the Lord say... The Lord will surely separate me from his people. And let not the eunuch say, behold, I'm a dry tree. For thus says the Lord to the eunuchs who keep my Sabbaths, who choose the things that please me and hold fast my covenant, I will give in my house and within my walls a monument and a name better than sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name that shall not be cut off. And the foreigners who join themselves to the Lord to minister to him, to love the name of the Lord, to be his servants, everyone who keeps the Sabbath and does not profane it and holds fast my covenant. These I will bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be accepted on my altar for my house shall be called a house of prayer for all peoples. Jesus quoted that in the Gospels. The Lord God who gathers the outcasts of Israel declares, I will gather yet others to him, that is to Israel. I will gather yet others to Israel besides those already gathered. Those verses represent that God's grace is big enough to include foreigners and eunuchs, the outcasts of society, those on the fringes of Israel's society. They also can be included in the covenant of grace. Um, my house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations is a principle of God's redemption reflected in all of the Bible. In other words, God has purposes to save. It has never been only to save the family of Abraham. It has never only been to save the Israelites. It has always been larger than that. God told Uh, Abraham in Genesis chapter 12, I will make you a great nation and in you all the nations of the earth will be blessed. When God tells Abraham in you all the nations of the earth will be blessed, it's the same as my house will be a house of prayer for all nations. God's grace is bigger than any one particular group of people. It's what Jesus talked about when uh, he talked about other sheep have I, them also I will bring into my fold. And there will be one flock there will be one shepherd. It's, the, it's what Jesus commissioned his disciples after he uh, rose from the grave. Before he ascended to his father. He said, uh, all authority has been given unto me and I now commission you to go out and baptize people in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Teaching them to observe all things that I've commanded you. All to preach the gospel everywhere. And they found out what that meant in the book of Acts. And they didn't really realize what it meant until you saw it playing out because they kind of, they were kind of stumbling along as the gospel first went out to Jews. And that includes Samaritans. 
And then it included Gentiles too. And there was a disruption in the church. Do Gentiles need to put themselves under the law of Moses to be saved? And the church convened in Acts chapter 15, and it was decided clearly. The apostles and the elders of the church were justified by faith in Christ, not by works of law. We're not under the law. And so that was decided or, or, or uh, testified to in Acts chapter 15. But the gospel goes out so that Peter at, in, in, at Pentecost when he's preaching, uh, the, what I love to see him preach is that whoever calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Whatever your background, whatever sin, whatever sin you brought to the cross, you can be forgiven by faith in Christ because it's not by virtue of your righteousness. I see Myron back there, and Myron, Myron would quote 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. No matter what your sin was prior to the cross, it can be forgiven at the cross. Whoever calls upon the name. It would lead me to two concluding thoughts. One is the church is bigger than many people think. The church of God in Christ is bigger than many people think. It's bigger than just my own scheme of eschatology. It's bigger than your, what you think is going to happen, how things are going to play out in the future. It may be different from the way I've got it figured out, but you know what? The kingdom of God includes us both. Uh, not everybody's theology is exactly like mine. Mine is imperfect. Yours is imperfect too. And there are people sometimes that have somewhat dramatically... In some sense, a dramatically different theology. They're still in the kingdom of God. We used to, my wife and I, when we first got married and moved to Lincoln, uh, a lot of times you move a place and you just assume there will be a good church. And then you go and you find out it's not as easy as you thought it would be. So we moved to Lincoln and and we kind of struggled finding any kind of a, because we came from a really good church in Ohio. Uh, my spiritual mentor was there. I, lear- I learned so much under his ministry, and then we moved to Lincoln, and and my tradition was mostly Baptist, so there were two basic Baptist churches in town. One was, uh, I'll call a very big B Baptist church, where they preached against six or ten or twelve things every Sunday, uh, as what was most important about life, which you should and shouldn't do, so you were kind of offended every week, and the other Baptist church didn't really preach anything. It was very milk toasty, and we kind of like, well, we could go here and not be offended and not learn, or we could go there and be offended, and, and we kind of bounced around trying to figure out what to do. We wound up going to a free Methodist church. A free Methodist church is, is on the conservative side of free Methodism, but one of the unfortunate things about the free Methodist church is that they didn't recognize the grace of God, I think, for all of, it, for all of its goodness, for all of its beauty. One of the ways that was reflected is they believed you could lose your salvation, that you could be saved by grace, but it was up to you to keep it, and you could lose your salvation. And these were, it was, a, it was an old church, an old congregation. We were definitely the young people there, uh, and we actually were young back then. Uh, but uh, we would go to this church, and, and those people taught me how to pray probably as much as anybody. These people prayed. Uh, their prayer services were absolutely beautiful, but they would often pray that they would hold on, that they would hang on. I think their theology is wrong. I, think, I, I don't think they understand the beauty and the depth of the grace of God. But you know what? 
though they lack that understanding, they're still in the kingdom of God. I have every reason to believe that those saints, dear saints, there was one guy, I called him Reverend Sill. He helped plant the church. You know, everybody had respect for Reverend Sill. You know, my theology was a lot different from his. But he's in the kingdom of God. The church is bigger than you think. But it's also true the church of God is smaller than you think or smaller than many people think because the church of God is not based upon the fact that if so long as you were a person of faith, you were in the kingdom of heaven. It's not just being a person of faith that gets you into the kingdom of heaven. It's faith in Christ for the forgiveness of sins. There is only one man who died on one cross to take away sins. There is only one man. They learned about this in VBS. There's only one man who rose from the grave that demonstrated his power over sin, death, and hell. Only one man. So the church is bigger than I think, but it's also smaller than I think. It's not based on what culture says gets you into the kingdom of heaven. It's based on what God says the gospel is that gets you into the kingdom of heaven. May God grant me faith to believe what he says takes away the forgiveness, uh, grants me the forgiveness of sins. So all those things are, are summed up, by, I think, in those first eight verses of Isaiah chapter 56. Uh, the importance of loving God, loving your neighbor, and I'll... I think I'll quit there and open it up for comments and questions. And you did get done earlier, so I guess that's one advantage of uh, not having PowerPoint. Cindy? I don't know that it's either or. I think it could be both and. I mean, I would say, to give you an easy example, the fact that we would support New Life uh, New Life Crisis Pregnancy Center is a matter of we are, are keeping, we are guarding justice. We are trying to bring justice and speak up for those that are vulnerable and susceptible uh, to exploitation, uh, ultimately to not only the mothers but to the children that might lose their lives. I think that is part of keeping justice. I don't think that has to be the only way, but that's one way. I think, you know, if you want to, I mean, yeah. I mean, I, there's a myriad of ways that may play out. Myriad of ways. I would say both. I mean, if you look at to James, you know, James, when he's writing to, I think, a gathered community of believers, part of keeping justice is not showing preferential treatment to the rich or the wealthy. That was part of the issue in, in James. Uh, we already are. Isn't social justice New Life Crisis Pregnancy yeah, Center? But yeah. I'm Could be. Yeah. I don't think there's a litmus test or a line. It's about a direction. It's not like, well, if we do this, we're doing what's right. I think you look at your opportunities, you look at your responsibilities. You look at what, how God has gifted you and what the resources God has given you, and you make decisions moving forward. And you move in that direction. You recognize that's part of what it means to be a Christian community. We reflect the kingdom of heaven's principles, and there isn't going to be this great class system in the kingdom of heaven. There isn't going to be the oppression of any segment of society. Actually, the Bible Project has an excellent video on justice, which if I'd had all the time in the world, I would have shown you that as well. But uh, I've got the time, I just don't have the projector. 
So, so I imagine, you know. I do know that, you know, as a church, you don't want to surrender what only the church can do to do what a lot of secular organizations can do. It doesn't mean we, there can't be overlap, because I think there can. But the church also has a sphere of responsibility and a message that only the church can bring. And I think that has to be central to everything that we do. Hannah? Yeah, that's that's actually a Dr. James Greer thought. He talked about extending the glory of God. You know, it's not it's not just. I mean, that's totally Dr. Greer. It's not just he said make sure nobody gets in the garden and messes things up. He wants you get your hands dirty. You know, rearrange those flowers. You know, come up with new varieties of whatever. Extend my glory because you are my image. The fact that we are creative and we want you know, it's it's not just a waste of time that you want to keep a nice yard. It could be an idol, it could be a substitute for for God, but it could also be a way you're celebrating God's creativity because you're creative as well in your own ways. I think that's a a wonderful thought. Uh, Terry, Jonathan, and you guys are using up all my extra time. This is is what I would get probably if if I were shorter every week. You don't want to throw the baby out with the bathwater. And it's interesting, the, the Bible uses the word consistently justice, as well as mercy. But it consistently talks about keeping justice, doing what is just. Uh, so, you know, there's an element which the Bible uses that. It's a redeemed word. The world takes it, and they corrupt it according to their own sinful tendencies. Uh, not exclusively so, but yeah, I mean. I mean, that's the thing. We're, we're really good at looking at people who are getting what they can from books and what they're feeding them. I'll let you and Jonathan figure that out over lunch. <laughs> Let's uh, stand and be dismissed in word prayer.